0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCleskey.
0: In many parts of the world, belonging to a religious community can have grave consequences, as religious minorities in many places must try to navigate life under repressive regimes. Today, we are checking in with one of our colleagues who focuses on international religious liberty issues. Joining us, we have Virginia Ferris. Virginia, or Jenny, as we call her here at the office, is a policy advisor in the Office of International Justice and Peace. She's been a guest here before to talk with us about religious persecution in China, and we're glad that she's here today to to tell us what what are we tracking these days on the international religious freedom front. Uh, So Jenny, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much, Aaron. And uh, glad to see both you and Mary and having an opportunity to talk about religious freedom uh, concerns all around the world. In terms of what is happening around the world, according to the Aid to the Church in Needs 2021 report on religious freedom, two-thirds of the world's population, which means about 5.2 billion people, live in countries where there are grave violations of religious freedom. And those violations can take the form of discrimination, such as inability to own a business, register your marriage, buy a house, and it can also take more virulent forms such as kidnappings, detentions, and attacks to outright killing. So aid to the church in need Notes three categories of violators of religious freedom authoritarian governments, Islamist extremists, and ethnic religious nationalists. It reports that in 42 countries, just changing your religion or renouncing your religion can have very grave legal and social consequences. I can also talk a little bit about the Pew centers reports and those have been going on for about since 2012 and pew the pew report talks about governmental versus societal uh restrictions on religion so in their most recent report which actually only covers up to 2019 they they note a slight decline in social hostilities but government restrictions are on the rise And for example, 91% of the countries that they viewed had at least one instance of government harassment against a religious group. And this was spread all around the world, Middle East, Africa, Asia, the Americas, and Europe. And this includes government interfering with worship, using force against religious groups, damaging property, arresting worshipers, attacking them so they're forced to flee and then of course torture and killing so it is a very widespread problem
0: what are some of the key places that that your office in particular um, has kind of been focusing on are are there any countries well actually you know i'm thinking though it may also help just to give listeners a sense of even what your office is like what the office of international justice and peace you know context for this what what is the focus of your office and then kind of how does it work how do you go about your work can you just give us a little brief summary of of how y'all do what you do
2: so the, the the office of international justice and peace resides within the department of justice peace and human development and we're a very small office there are only four of us each of us covering a geographic area and an issue area so one colleague covers Latin America and trade, one covers Africa and development. One person covers the Middle East and war and peace issues, including nuclear nonproliferation and and disarmament. And I cover the rest of the world, which is uh, pretty large. But in point yeah, of fact, very large. Because, <laughs> because it's so large, uh, it's supposed to be Eurasia. Um, but I basically concentrate most on South, Southeast, and East Asia, and my issue area is human rights, and much of that is centered on international religious freedom.
0: Uh-huh. So, that
2: gives you a fairly good idea,
0: yeah. I think that is, that is helpful. Um, Mary, I think, has a question, yeah.
1: I just want to say, like, you know, Jenny, as you're talking, you know, before we started recording, we're talking about, oh, we saw each other at the office the other day briefly and like i forget at the comp at the usccb right like it's a good reminder as you were talking like i was instantly hit with wow what a challenge what what a widespread problem and wow there's only four of you to cover these kinds of issues i guess my question is what um so you're, you're tracking all of this, right, which is very a very huge issue and can be very overwhelming, I would imagine, because you're talking about a very big challenge and you're talking about multiple different levels of religious persecution, right? And that can make people's lives incredibly difficult or even in some cases threaten their very lives. Um, what What is the mission, like the goal? Are you providing an understanding of these issues for the purposes of helping provide resources to people, bishops, and their, um, and people in dioceses in the U.S., or um, in order to, for the bishops to work internationally with bishops in other countries? Or I guess I'm trying to say before, you cannot possibly, you know, end religious persecution with all the bishops by yourself. So what is kind of the narrow focus and mission of what you're doing as you try to tackle all these issues?
2: Well, I think the committee as a whole is dedicated towards strengthening relationships with Episcopal conferences overseas and bringing their concerns back to policy makers within the United States. Obviously, not all their concerns will be related to religious freedom issues. It may be economic sanctions, or it may be Let's stop a war, <laughs> or let's you know make sure that there are um, there's uh, nuclear disarmament. It raises high on the agenda of the U.S. government as we look to the next um, nuclear posture review. So, so it is very overwhelming at times, and uh, and we have to try and narrow down where we can put our emphases. And before each Congress comes into uh, session, we develop our public policy priorities in which we list um, the issues that we're going to have as our lobbying advocacy issues, issues and countries, and then our monitoring issues. So sort of tier one, tier two in terms of how actively we work on uh, different areas uh, both issues and countries. Now, obviously, that may shift depending upon uh, what is happening around the world. So Ukraine probably was not on our on our high on our list, but obviously it has come to the forefront. Um, so in essence, with the, with not having any solidarity visits, there's still the communication through emails, through secure communication channels, particularly for those uh, countries where the government may monitor any kind of communication. So we are still able to connect with many Episcopal conferences overseas and learn about what their concerns are, what they want us to tell the US government and Congress as to. How they can contribute towards how the church can contribute towards resolution of some of these conflicts and problems overseas. Does that help,
1: Mary? Yeah, that's very helpful, and it's an important distinction, I I think, too, that this your work is 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 policy oriented, is is communication among leaders, right? Whereas the more direct assistance, right, is is in other departments. That kind of work um, is is other. Agencies Catholic Relief Services, uh, those kinds of organizations,
2: but having said that I will also say when you talked about to what extent we try and uh, magnify the work that we're doing um, within the United States, I think that's where uh, USCCB in particular our committee support for this international religious freedom summit. That was held in July of 2021. Um, that's where our um, our domestic focus may come in, because that was the first such summit held with the aim of increasing grassroots awareness of international religious freedom, and so we were supportive of that. My boss, Lucas, coach was part of the planning committee. We had a bishop from Nigeria come and speak at that committee at at that summit. And that summit had a a thousand people coming in person. So it was a really big thing. And they are hoping to do a second such summit in uh, June uh, 2022. And they hope to have double the number.
0: I wonder, Jenny, if um, to make some of this more concrete, if you could maybe tell us, you know, about some particular countries, um, you know, if there are any that in particular that y'all are following more closely or that you have more close communication um, with the leadership in in some of of these countries, um, like you just mentioned, Nigeria. Um, Are there any particular issues that you're following right now and that you can tell us kind of what is going on in those places? To give us a, a better sense of like how this how this is actually playing out you know in one in a particular place
2: so one of the countries i'm tracking specifically is myanmar uh which as you may be aware they on february one it's a one-year anniversary of the military coup that in essence overthrew the results of the november 2020 election which was won by the National League of Democracy led by Aung San Suu Kyi. And it's a a country where I have been uh, trying to follow very closely because Cardinal Charles Mongbo, who is uh, the uh, Archbishop of Yangon, has been playing a role over the years of trying to be a bridge builder between the military and uh, other groups Catholics are a really small minority within the country which is basically a Buddhist country but there are pockets of of Christians um, in some of the uh, border province border, border states and obviously there's a large there was there was a large uh, Muslim population, the Rohingya who had to flee in 2017. Some 700,000 Rohingya um, fled across the border into Bangladesh because of the uh, virulent um, persecution they were facing, Um, the military and extremist groups coming in and raising whole villages, raping women, killing people. So 700,000 people fled into Bangladesh. Bangladesh is a poor country, and it uh, trying to accommodate that many people is certainly a big burden. So on top of that, what many have called a genocide, now comes the uh, military coup. And what that has meant is that is that you have, in contrast to what happened against the Rohingya, I believe that there has been a more of a grassroots civil society movement against the military. And many of these, even some Buddhist monks, as well as other, other minorities are saying, well, if the military can do this to us, what they did to the Rohingya, so we should unite and fight back against the military. So there has been um, an effort to to push back. In all candor, um, the military has the weapons, including airplanes, which they do airstrikes against uh, areas. Um, And again, a a number of people are fleeing across the border into India, China, Thailand, even Malaysia, to escape the fighting and the harassment by the military. Cardinal Bow is trying to negotiate and encouraging dialogue between these opposition groups as well as the military, uh, but it is a very difficult, difficult task indeed. Um, another area that I actually have... Been looking into to some extent is India. India is a a place that actually I have the distinction of being declared persona non grata because I actually went in 2010 to look at religious freedom issues. And I went in 2010 because in 2008, in the fall of 2008, a Hindu swami was killed in a northeast. State of India, but despite the fact that what did they call themselves, Naxalites, Maoist uh, claimed responsibility for his killing. Hindus went sort of went on a rampage against Christians, and maybe as many as a hundred were killed. Thousands were injured. Uh, at one point, there was an estimate of as many as fifty thousand displaced. So. We went to look in March 2010 and saw some of the destruction. Spoke to people who had been injured, suffered, uh, saw communities, uh, churches burned, etc. We talked to various religious leaders and political leaders about what could be done to ensure that this kind of thing didn't happen again. Nonetheless, the visit raised concerns by those who want to promote in the nation, and consequently the five of us who went on that trip are now banned from traveling back to India. I would also say that the US Commission on International Religious Freedom has never been able to send its commissioners to India. It's not that they've been denied a visa, but they have never been granted visas in the timely fashion. And these commissioners have gone to Saudi Arabia. They've gone to many other places that have admittedly a more egregious reputation as far as international religious freedom. Um, India as the largest uh, democracy and supposedly a secular, Democracy, which has freedom of religion on its constitution, it is questionable as to why they won't let any USURF commissioners into the country.
0: I wonder if you could talk a little bit about a couple of, of places, uh, countries that are, you know, really prominent right now in the news and are in national, they are receiving a lot of media coverage. Um, and that would be the Ukraine and China. Obviously, Ukraine, I don't, it's, that's not a religious liberty issue I, that I know of, but I wonder if you can, uh, if you are able to speak to that, are there religious liberty issues to be concerned about in, there? And, but then even if there aren't, can you just say a little bit, because I'm just sure that people would want to hear what, what is, has what the USCCB response been to that situation?
2: Yes. So Ukraine obviously has been much in the news as as we're concerned as to whether or not we will, their war will break out there. Uh, Russia has amassed uh, 100,000 troops around Ukraine's borders. They apparently have said they've withdrawn some, but reports today indicate that maybe they haven't. US and the NATO have indicated they would respond strongly if Russia Russia should invade. And Russia did invade in 2014 when they took over Crimea. So the conflict revolves around the fact that Ukraine, as a former member of the Soviet Union, is now leaning towards the West and potentially wanting to join NATO. And Russia sees that as a threat and does not want that to happen. So as to the Religious freedom concerns, um, it's a pretty complex demographic in the Ukraine. About 65% of of the population identify as Orthodox, but they are divided between the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church Kiev Patriarchate, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate, and just plain Orthodox. And in addition, there is the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church. So if the Ukrainian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate is obviously closely aligned with the Russian Orthodox Church, which in turn is very supportive of the Putin government. So in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea, um, which is sort of down towards the southwest part of the country, they also encouraged pro-Russian separatists in the southeastern part of Ukraine, uh, Donbass and Luhansk, to declare independence. And in those two regions, Donbass and Luhansk, If you were not pro-Russian and, by extension, supportive of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate, then you found suddenly found your life to be very hard. The Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church property was confiscated in that region, and the bishop had to move his chancery more to the west for safety, and some 900. I'm sorry, 90,000 people have fled from Donbas and Luhansk and Caritas Ukraine is actively working to provide support for these internally displaced persons. So USCCB is providing support to the Catholic church in Ukraine by funding pastoral care projects and working with Caritas Ukraine to provide emergency assistance as well as train volunteers on how best to respond to emergencies. Um, Just yesterday, USCCB announced a collection to be taken up on Ash Wednesday, March 2nd, for the church in Central and Eastern Europe that's still recovering from the legacy of Soviet oppression. So funds collected will support youth ministries, seminaries, social services, pastoral centers, evangelization, catechesis, communications, church construction, etc. in 28 countries, including Ukraine, uh, with the aim of bringing healing and opportunities for renewed life in Christ. So USCCB has echoed calls for peace issued by Pope Francis, the Catholic bishops of Ukraine and Poland, and Ukrainian Catholics in the United States. And the United States. Just this past weekend, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church bishops in the US appealed to the faithful to conduct a three-day vigil of prayer for peace and the conversion of hearts of those who preach violence and escalate war. So Ukraine is an area that we are looking at quite uh, closely and trying to assist as much as possible.
0: And then regarding China again for one that falls kind of in your area in in one of your main areas Jenny so definitely want to ask you about it but also with the Olympics going on it's it's getting more coverage um and, and some of the issues there are getting more coverage than they typically get which that that's a good thing I think so I wonder could you 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 spoke with us a couple of years ago about the situation in China can you talk a little bit about what's going on where do things stand there um, just give us, give us a sense, uh, kind of a thumbnail sketch of what's going on in China.
2: Since I last spoke with you, religious restrictions have increased in China. In May of 2021, China's State Bureau of Religious Affairs began implementing new measures for the administration of religious teaching staff. Now, these measures in detail the rights and obligations of religious uh, people, and they, in essence, strengthen the Chinese Communist Party's management of all religious activity. The aim is to further solidify the cynicization of religion in China, isolating it from foreign influence. And these measures apply to all religions. And you may ask, well, what do I mean by cynicization? So cynicization from the Chinese perspective means that all religion should have Chinese characteristics. It should sort of adhere and perhaps support Chinese traditional values approach, but in this particular instance, more specifically support the objectives of the Chinese Communist Party. As you mentioned, the Beijing Olympics are going on now, and the US decided to diplomatically boycott the Olympics on the grounds of what many have called a genocide against Muslims in Xinjiang. Thousands of Uyghur Muslims have been sent to re-education camps, some possibly killed, others conscripted into forced labor. Chinese authorities are attempting to suppress Uyghur language, culture, and religious practice, such as making sure Muslims eat during Ramadan, the normal month in which they fast from sunup to sundown. Besides the Uyghurs, practitioners of Falun Gong, a spiritual practice related to Buddhism, have been persecuted for over 20 years, arrested tortured and, according to reports, had their organs harvested for transplants. Some Tibetan Buddhist monasteries have been forced to close and their monks expelled. But Catholics are not exempt. In 2021, a Catholic bishop approved by the Vatican, but not recognized by Chinese authorities, was arrested along with seven priests and 10 seminarians. For violating these new regulations governing all religious teaching Catholic schools, kindergartens orphanages have been forced to close anyone under 18 cannot enter a Catholic Church as Chinese authorities want to prohibit the next generation from learning about religion, and this is not just Catholics or it it applies again, according uh, across all religions. a Christian perspective, there are reports that China is producing its own version of the Bible to reflect loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party above all else. Um, I read an article about this. I don't, you know, this is a report that the Chinese version of Jesus meeting the adulterous, and instead of saying, go forth and sin no more, and who's Only you without sin can cast a stone. In the Chinese version, it may be that Jesus does a stoning. So obviously, major change.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So
2: uh, Pope Francis um, called on Catholics around the world to pray for Christians in China on May 24, the Feast of Our Lady, Help of Christians. And that is a day designated designated by Pope Francis. Excuse me designated by Pope Benedict as a worldwide day of prayer for the church in China. And Cardinal Bo, who not only is Archbishop of Yangon, but current president of the Federation of Asian Bishops' Conferences, called for the day of prayer to be extended to a week of prayer. And Bishop Malloy, chairman of our committee, issued a statement in support of these prayers for the church and the people of China.
0: I think one thing that really strikes me, you know, I know you can kind of classify the kind of persecution people face. You know, that as you mentioned, there are kind of different categories of it. But it is it is striking hearing you give the concrete examples because it even seems like the motivation, you know, like what the persecutors are doing is is different in these different places. Like in some places, that there seems to be a kind of. It, you know, kind of a disorganized, just sort of rage against another group, you know, almost a kind of mob violence sometimes, where like, that's, that's kind of what I heard from the story in India. Whereas with China, with with what's going on with like a communist regime, I mean, it's, it's political party and ideology, asserting total control over every dimension of people's lives and religion sort of disrupts that if, or it can be something that disrupts the ability of a political party to gain, to have total control or to that, I mean, a church or any religious community um, makes claims on people that can, that go beyond the claim that the state can make on people. Right. So that's, I mean, you can see why it threatens the power of a government. Anyway, all that to say, it's just, it's striking to me how On the one hand, you hear this, that like two thirds of the world of people live under repressive regimes, but just the variety, the different factors that are at work in in these different kinds of regimes, it's just it's something that really sticks out to me.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there are, in some cases, perhaps more theocracies that in those instances, a government may feel... That an opposing religion is a threat to the religious foundations of that country. But in many cases, religion has become perhaps a pretext for for power struggles, for economic domination. So religion is used as a way to gain either more popularity among the population or gain more political influence by designating this my religious minority as somehow the other that is undermining their own control so so yes that that is definitely a problem i was i was thinking that in some cases it's not so much that it's um a theological difference but the fact that religious groups may hold positions or principles that run counter to what a government uh, wants to do. And so the church in a number of countries has found itself on the outs with governments simply because they're promoting good governance or standing up against corruption or abuse.
0: Well, when we hear these stories and, you know, hear of how widespread this it is um i think it it can be hard to hear about because i think we just really to be an american freedom is sort of like like religious freedom is one thing that people from all across the political spectrum even if we disagree about what it means everybody in america basically says that they're for religious freedom it's just sort of kind of in our dna and when you hear these and it's sort of, it's just horrifying because you're just, it's hard for us to imagine what it could be like to be, to live under these kinds of regimes. I just wonder, I mean, you know, how do you, where do you see, do you see any hope in the area of international religious freedom? Where do you find any sense of hope? I mean, obviously our our ultimate hope is, is in Jesus Christ, but in terms of just real, even looking looking at some of these different political situations and what's happening in some of these places, are there areas where you see that things maybe could be getting better, or like the like the seeds of something better have are being planted, and and we're trying to kind of nurture those nurture those seeds, or what? Where do you find anything positive happening in this front?
2: Well, I think. In I had mentioned this International Religious Freedom Summit that took place um, last year. And I I would say that that is a strong sign of hope because you had, as I mentioned, about a thousand people coming. And you had religious leaders, the Dalai Lama, the general secretary of the largest Muslim organization in Indonesia. The Greek Orthodox Archbishop of America, uh, Maronite Patriarch Rye, who uh, policymakers from Congress and the executive branch, you had victims and survivors of persecution all coming either in person or in some case or video messages being sent by them. Unfortunately, we did not have the Dalai Lama in person. But I think it was a seminal moment to raise the profile of international religious freedom within the United States when ambassador brownback was the ambassador at large for international religious freedom he sort of ramped up trying to raise a global profile of of this issue and so there is an alliance for international religious freedom where there are, I think, some 30 countries now have joined to work on specific religious freedom issues. And this is at the government level. So you have the government level, some effort being made to highlight um, these uh, international religious freedom. And then you have the grassroots level of uh, the International Religious Freedom Summit another thing that ambassador brownback really promoted is international religious freedom roundtables being established around uh, around the world and there now there are, are there are in places like south sudan we have one in kazakhstan we have there is one in guatemala that just came online obviously a number of places within europe But um, trying to uh, engage more people around the world on this issue, I think, is always a, a good positive sign. The new ambassador at large for international religious freedom is Rashad Hussein. He is the first Muslim to hold that position. And under the Obama administration, he was a special envoy to the Organization for Islamic Cooperation. So he has a certain in with the Muslim uh, with Muslim groups, and one hopes that the dialogue that he starts will bear fruit in terms of trying to promote more of a atmosphere of tolerance and pluralism, religious tolerance and pluralism. Now, Pope Francis. Uh, also met with the grand imam of al-Azhar University in Egypt. And together they produced the Declaration on Human Fraternity. And that dialogue was intended to address religiously motivated violence. And uh, it says specifically, all concerned should stop using religions to incite hatred Violence, extremism, and blind fanaticism, and to refrain from using the name of God to justify acts of murder, exile, terrorism, and oppression. So that's a pretty powerful statement. Obviously, it's something that needs to be implemented at, at all levels, and that of course still remains a challenge. but I think this is, this declaration, is a important step towards Catholic-Muslim
1: dialogue. Jenny, um, this is incredible information and such important work. Wow! Um, but I find myself listening and thinking, like, what can I do? What can our listeners do? What can people do? I mean, I know we can we can always pray. And and I was I was thinking about you know sometimes the martyrs that have been um, that have come out of situations like I know they're Japanese martyrs in, in Japan and all areas of the world where there have been these terrible situations of religious persecution. But so, you know, we can fast and pray. Are there particular um, patron saints we can pray to for these situations? But how can the average Catholic get involved and 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 do
2: Well, I think um, one of the uh, important things would be for Catholics in the US to be willing to learn more about religious freedom conflicts. And part of that can be done simply by trying to connect with these diaspora communities within the United States, Um, I am certainly aware that there's a large uh, fairly active Myanmar community uh, around here that they've been advocating for a Burma a Burma human rights bill in Congress. There are religious groups that are um, very active. The Chin Baptists are really active in terms of trying to uh, provide support for, for their communities. Uh, but uh, actually it was a group of Catholics from Myanmar who were in touch with uh, Bishop Malloy in his diocese. So trying to connect with some of these diaspora communities, the Sudanese, the Nigerians, Chinese, certainly. there, There are a number of these communities in the United States who are happy to try and share information about what is happening in their countries And that, I think, is a very important thing, to be educated about the situation so that you can no longer turn a blind eye or be indifferent. Education is is critical. The other thing is to support the work of Catholic organizations like Catholic Relief Services, Aid to the Church in Need, Catholic Near East Welfare Association. Caritas Internationalis. If you go to uh, the websites of some of these organizations, you will see that they have stories about the work that they're doing and the people that they serve. And that's, again, uh, a way to educate yourself. But also, if you're able to provide some support to these organizations, they are doing tremendous vital work to help people in terms of uh, facing not only persecution, but just simply humanitarian disasters or natural disasters. They are so critical to the work that the church wants to do overall. The number of crises around the world has led to 82 million people being forcibly displaced. And this is the highest number ever on record. And so many people are displaced due to conflicts, real or manufactured over religion, and 86% of those displaced are in developing countries where they're very ill-equipped to handle the burden, just like Bangladesh accepting 700,000 Rohingya. So according to the UN High Commission for Refugees, one out of Every 95 people in the world is an asylum seeker, internally displaced, or a refugee. Prayer is very important. Trying to track some legislation to provide support for what organizations like uh, Catholic Relief Service are doing overseas, that's that's really uh, critical. We just had the Catholic Social Ministry gathering in which participants were urged to go to Congress and speak to their senators about supporting the passage of critical poverty reducing international humanitarian and development assistance. Those are the suggestions that individuals can do to not only educate themselves, but to help our brothers and sisters around the world. We are one body in Christ, And being able to care for those in need around the world is one of the callings of our Catholic faith.
0: Well said. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. I really like those action suggestions. And I think that they really reinforce each other, I would say, because, you know, not to brag on my kids too much, but but one of them in particular, whenever... (laughs) We have our morning prayers together as a family. He always, when we have prayer requests, he always prays for the church and all of these places that he's aware of, where there where people are being persecuted. Oh, and then that's
1: it, so cute, Aaron.
0: <laughs> so, it, but then it does make a difference around Christmas time when we talk about doing kind of some extra giving. You know, we we then look to to giving to some of to organizations that we know are are dealing with this kind of issue but I think that it does, it makes a difference because it's like on our minds all year round because we're, because it's part of our daily prayer life to pray for the church in these places. Um And, and so, so I think that all of these things, whether the advocacy, the prayer, and then the giving, they all sort of, they can all kind of mutually reinforce one another. And so I, I I'm I like that you that you said all of those things because you know if you do one of those, you, they, then the other things can kind of follow. So, thank you so much. I, th- I think that's all we have um, for today, and so thank you so much, Jenny, for taking time out to to share with us to to educate us. I think it's been a great conversation. It's always I always learn a lot whenever whenever we talk to our colleagues in international justice and peace. So, thank thank you for all that you do.
2: Thank you very much, Aaron, and look forward to another podcast with you in the future.
1: All
0: right.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Jenny.
0: We've been talking to our colleague, Jenny Ferris, about issues uh, about um, international religious liberty issues. I'm Aaron Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.